This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. Welcome back. This is In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio. Our special guest today is Adam Kilgore, who is general counsel for the Mississippi Bar. This morning, we are going to talk about what you, as the client, should know and expect from your lawyer. And since you've got three lawyers sitting here for free for an hour, we'll be glad to talk about any other legal questions that you might have on your mind. If you have a question or comment, give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or if you prefer, you can send us an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. Good morning, Professor Gershon. And uh, welcome back to the show. Uh, it's good to have you on, and really great to have Adam Kilgore on this morning. Adam is the general counsel of the Mississippi Bar, and you know he sees a lot working with lawyers. And uh, we, we talked about what would be a good topic for the show, and Adam came up with the idea of, well, what about how can a client be a better client? How can they save themselves money? How can they be prepared the, when they talk to a lawyer? What are the, the steps they should take? You know, what's in their control? So I think this is going to be a really great show today. Oh, I agree. He's got a great topic with a lot of helpful information for potential clients or existing clients out there. Adam, we appreciate you taking time this morning to be with us. Uh, glad to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. If you could, could you just tell us generally a little bit about what you do for the Mississippi Bar? Sure. I, we handle attorney discipline in my office. Uh, we get approximately 500 bar complaints uh, over the course of a year. Uh, we certainly handle the discipline side of those things, working uh, as a court-appointed uh, a disciplinary agent. Uh, Supreme Court of Mississippi has uh, uh, designated us, uh, given us that status, and uh, we handle those types of matters, and that can result in some discipline for lawyers. Uh, we also have a preventive maintenance uh, aspect to things where we are uh, answering ethics questions for lawyers uh, and uh, continuing legal education and trying to give them good insight so they can make informed decisions. And uh, uh, so it's something I've been doing for a while. Glad to get to do it. Well, and, Greg, I'm sorry to interrupt, but one thing that the bar does, I think, is really, really a great step forward. And, and bars around the country have done this is helping lawyers who have substance abuse problems. Uh, you know, it used to be a disciplinary matter. Now it's really a, a, a health and wellness matter to try to help these lawyers, uh, you know, get back on their feet. And, and I just wanted to put a plug in for that, too. And we have a lawyers and judges assistance program that does that, and uh, we've seen some uh, beautiful success stories in the midst of that, too. Oh, yeah. I've, I've, I've heard positive uh, uh, outcomes from, from use of that service, and you know, your, your mere presence here has already lit up our phone lines, but before we get to John down in Biloxi, I, could you just, you know, what we wanted to set the show, uh, the stage for is, you know, meeting with your lawyer, uh, which can be an intimidating prospect for some people. If, if you, if you would, give give sort of the, the, the overall of what a, a potential client should have in mind 
when they first go meet with their lawyer? Well, uh, the, the first one that comes to my mind is just trying to calm down a little bit. Um, you know, I, all three of us on this uh, on the show today are lawyers, and um, I think it's probably routine for each of us to get phone calls from friends or friends of friends. And, hey, you know, I've got this situation. What do I need to do? And, and trying to calm yourself in the midst of a uh, stressful situation, whatever the reason is, uh, and, and collecting yourself and getting meaningful information together to go see a lawyer uh, and uh, to, to use your time wisely and to use that lawyer's time wisely is, is, is I think, the goal of the program today. We could, uh, you know, a less fancier title for it would be how to be a good client. Right. Well, let's let's go ahead and get John down in Biloxi. Uh, John, good morning. Good morning, guys. How you doing? We're just fine. Good. What's your uh, question or comment this morning? Well, as a former employee and a current employer, this question regards non-compete clauses. And from friends and family, they always make the comment that it's not worth the paper it's written on. But it, you know, when I speak with my counsel, it's a little bit more of a serious matter to things to be considered. And I just kind of wanted to hear what your take was generally on non-compete to restrict employees from from gaining employment. And, and, John, thank you very much for the call. And, Adam, if I could put it to you this way, if if you're someone who thinks you have a potential problem with a non-compete clause and you're going to meet with your lawyer for the first time, what what should you do to prepare for that? Well, my my recollection from law school days on non-compete is they must be reasonable in length uh, and they must be reasonable in uh, in other terms. Uh, You two fellows may know more about them than I do, but uh, certainly bringing in information uh, along the lines of uh, how long you've worked there, what's the nature of the work, what are you actually being prohibited from doing at the next job if you take the next job or if you've already taken the next job, uh, maybe a list of potential customers or customers you used to have. I think it's that kind of information that you would try to gather for the lawyer walking in the door instead of uh, it, you, you want to avoid the situation where you go in and go, well, you know, I worked there for a couple of years and, you know, I had a few clients and a few customers. Give them meaningful information, something they can work with. Yeah, and and uh, John, you know, non compete clauses uh, can generally be enforceable, but I, Adam is absolutely right. They've they've got to be reasonable. They're limited. Their time duration. So I think one thing you would want to take when you go meet with your lawyer is certainly a copy of it, a copy of your appointment contract, uh, and and what else, uh, Adam would would John want to take. Uh, to, to the lawyer on that first meeting so the lawyer can get the best picture of what he needs to, 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 to consider. Well, and, and this applies to uh, any potential client. If you can walk in the door with copies of documents and, and copies is the important phrase there. One of the things we hear at the bar from uh, time to time is, I brought in originals, things didn't work out with that lawyer, I can't get the original back. Generally speaking, unless it's some unique set of circumstances, it is recommended you walk in with copies of documents. Another thing to have would be some type of detailed timeline or narrative. And and for the callers and the, and, and the listeners, think, think about that friend that you have that calls you for advice. And you've got a variety of friends, and, and some of them are those folks, they just need to kind of blurt out everything about whatever the situation is, and there's no real 
uh, organization to it, and you kind of have to sift through it. And something that could have taken twenty, you know, five minutes takes twenty. You want to try to be that five minute person from the standpoint of walking in with that lawyer to look at the matter and have, you know, meaningful information, a timeline of events, those kind of things, so the lawyer has the best picture possible, um, and it's going to help with efficiency and potentially save on some costs. So there, there's a lot of things that shoot off of that. Well, and Adam, I would totally agree with that. You know, from an estate planning point of view, if you can do your own narrative about what you want to have happen and, and how you want your assets to go and who the people are in your family, the other thing that can do is protect you when someone claims you lack capacity, if you've written that in your own handwriting, those kinds of things. So there are lots of steps you can take. It's like, you know, when, a, when you go to the doctor and they say, bring your prescription medics, medications with you, you know, the same way you want to prepare going to a lawyer to make sure we have all the information pertinent to help you. John, did that help you uh, answer your question? It did. If I could say one last thing, I, I, I missed the uh, point as far as my question pertaining to initially meeting with a lawyer, but you mentioned scope, and, uh, like, I was restricted in a, in a previous employee that line compete by global geography, and uh, I was a sales rep in the South, but I was restricted for game in the world. And, um, you know, that just... It kept me. It, it stopped. It, it stopped me, but it also bugs me that uh, that I allow that to stop me. And, I, and I'll uh, let Adam and, and Dean Gershon chime in, too. But I think one thing to, to keep in mind is when you go to meet with the lawyer to, to talk about that non-compete is to have a good understanding of what the market is in, in that line of work that you're doing. Because the non-compete uh, could be enforceable in scope, depends on what it is that the business is that they're trying to keep you from non-competing in, and as long as it's reasonable. So, John, thank you so much for the call. We are, we are talking this morning with Adam Kilgore, who is general counsel of the Mississippi Bar, and he's here to talk about what you should know and expect as a client meeting with your lawyer for the first time and as your case progresses. We'd love for you to join us. Give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. 672 uh, Adam, moving ahead, when you when you first meet with that lawyer, one thing that we've talked about is uh, is it typical that the only person in that meeting will be the lawyer himself, or can other people be there? Other people can be there. There are there are things to think about there. Um, you know, certainly the lawyer may decide to have someone else visit uh, for a variety of reasons. It can be, depend on the nature of the case. Um, you know, a lawyer should kind of read their client, uh, not only what type of case it is, but what type of person they are, whether whether this is a fragile situation where someone's in a lot of physical and or emotional pain, those kind of things. Those same things can drive the cl- client to potentially bring someone else in the room with them or not. And, and there's some things that they need to think about there, too, uh, you know, whether they're violating any type of privilege. You know, this needs to be a confidential visit. Um, so you have to really think those things through. Uh, but it's not, you know, it's not always one on one, but there's nothing wrong with it. If it is. 
and, and certainly check with your with the lawyer meeting with about if you should bring somebody or not. Correct. <laughs> yeah. And so letting the lawyer know, I, I uh, had a friend call me last week saying, uh, you know, I'm going to be on the phone with my mom who's talking to this lawyer. You know, what should I do? And my recommendation was announce that you're on the phone. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, some some basic courtesy things. Lawyers are extremely uncomfortable uh, and rightfully so if they don't know who all's on the call, for example, if this is a, in a telephone setting um, that is unsettling and can create some mistrust between the lawyer and, and the client, too. And that's not the, a good way to start your your uh, attorney client relationship. All right. Well, we're going to take our first break of the day. And when we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Adam Kilgore. We'd love for you to join us. Give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can also send an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to In Legal Terms. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show at mpbonline.org slash In Legal Terms. You can also find it on the MPB Media app. All of MPB shows are available on the app. This morning, we are talking with Adam Kilgore, who is General Counsel for the Mississippi Bar. Adam is here to discuss what you, as the client, should know and expect from your lawyer. And before the break, we were talking about what you should bring with you and how to prepare for that very first meeting with your lawyer. So let's now shift gears and talk a little bit about what you should expect uh, in your lawyer's handling of the case. And, and Adam, I guess to get us started, the most important thing you should know is, or at least have clear in your head, is exactly what you've hired this attorney to do. Can you discuss setting the parameters? Sure. And uh, it, that... Uh very question can be at the core of misunderstanding uh, going forward. Uh, we have live in a society where people uh, seem to expect I hired you to handle uh, this particular matter, uh, you know, a custody issue, and oh, by the way, I have a, a property line dispute. And people, you know, I mean, this happens to every lawyer, the, the client will say, and oh, by the way, I have this going on too. And there can be misunderstanding on that. That is a separate issue that probably should be handled in a separate way. You shouldn't assume that you just get to piggyback that. Um, just like you wouldn't have someone come in and put in your air conditioner and go, oh, by the way, fix the gutters. You know, do that for free. So there, there, there can be some confusion there. The best way to manage that is to have a written contract. Uh, written contracts are not required in Mississippi unless it's a contingency fee contract. And I know we'll get into that in a minute. 
uh, from my perspective, both for the lawyer and the client, it is beneficial to have a written contract because you get to set the parameters of what the representation is about. I was hired to do blank. I am hiring you to do this. Uh, there are certain things that happen, you know, in a criminal matter, someone may only represent at the trial level and not handle the appeal. And the client thinks that, well, you know, you're going to handle the appeal too, right? And there could be some misunderstanding and a statute of limitations missed. There's a lot of things, but, you know, that contract is an opportunity to set forth what the objectives of the representation are. And I, and I recommend it. You know, in fact, Adam, I teach uh, a legal ethics class here and I tell my students, you must have a written agreement because it's the only way to protect yourself, really. I, you know, I know it's not required by law, but um, it is the right way to practice. I can't think of a, a set of circumstances where it doesn't make sense, and it's really helpful. Uh, we, we as lawyers also have times where we're representing friends, um, and those particular scenarios can get a little bit uh, muddy uh, if you're not careful. If you have a written contract, then there's not going to be an, an, uh, any anything awkward later on. So there's, there are a myriad of reasons why it's a good idea. We're talking this morning with Adam Kilgore, the general counsel for the Mississippi Bar, about what you as the client should know and expect. We'd love for you to join our conversation. So give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Adam, one of the things you, you touched on, and we can get into a little bit more depth here, are fees. Uh, and because that's probably the most pressing issue for most clients going into a representation. Uh, what what on the with regard to fees should you discuss with the lawyer on the front end? What am I going to uh, be responsible for uh, uh, and get some specifics along the lines of uh, am, am I responsible for costs and expenses, you know, copy costs, if you're going to be, you know, uh, making, you know, a bunch of copies of this or that, um, uh, you know, how, how uh, should – what is the expectation on how I'm going to pay that fee and when? What does the fee actually cover? Goes back to what we were speaking to a minute a moment ago. What is the objective of the representation? How far does this go? Do you represent me if I have to appeal this later? Uh, all those types of things uh, obviously can be driven by fee. Uh, we we mentioned contingency fee earlier. Uh, that is a scenario where the lawyer may well take on the costs of the case, but is going to take a portion of the fee. Now, in return, should the lawyer succeed uh, on, on the case, uh, there still can be some misunderstanding in that setting, too. Is the lawyer fitting the bill on the expenses, or is the client still responsible for those expenses? Or is the client only responsible for those expenses if the lawyer succeeds? Uh, so there, there's a lot of pieces there, and it's uh, a real good opportunity to set that on the front end so there's not confusion later. And, Adam, one, one uh, level of confusion that happens is, does the lawyer's fee from a victorious uh, uh, you know, case, when there's a contingency fee, does that fee come out before expenses come out or after expenses come out? Because that can affect the overall cost of the client. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and, and all of these are parameters that, that you would recommend be put into writing. Um, Agreed. What if the lawyer, you know, there's lawyer just says to the client, oh, don't worry about that. We'll work that out as the case goes along. How should a client handle that? Client needs to read that individual just like the lawyer is reading that into you know reading the client and, and and get a feel for that. There, 
you know, I, I did sales back in the day in a, in a previous life, and, and I remember a salesman telling me, you know, for some, some sales calls, uh, you put the coat on. And for other sales calls, you take the tie off. And so just kind of knowing who you're dealing with and the comfort level and trying to relate to people um, can feed feed those thoughts a little bit. But the bottom line is the safest approach is to say, I would feel more comfortable if this would be in writing and if we could do it this way. I don't want to have any, any, any misunderstanding. And I think most any lawyer would agree to do that. If the client doesn't feel comfortable with that, then maybe they should consider uh, checking out somebody else. And, and that kind of brings me to my, my next question to, to you both, because I get asked this uh, frequently, is how does a client know if the fees she or he's being charged are actually reasonable? Like the retainer on the front end, is that a reasonable amount? Or the hourly fee, is that a, a reasonable amount? Is there some resource or market? How, do, how would you recommend somebody go about and figure that out? Well, we've got a rule. Uh, the Mississippi Rules of Professional Conduct uh, are designed, and they're issued by the Supreme Court of Mississippi. Those, those rules are designed to give lawyers uh, guidance and tell them what the shall and the shall not is. Uh, but mixed into that is is um, some analysis that a client can make. And, it, and it's really hard to expect a client to be able to get a true answer to what you're talking about. It's more of a conceptual thing. So rule 1.5 for those looking at home uh, is the rule that deals with fees. And the general premise there is that a fee must be reasonable. Okay, then what? Well, there's eight factors listed there that talks about the uh, time and labor required, the likelihood of if the lawyer takes on this client, they may not be able to, they may have a conflict and not be able to represent someone else stemming from this case in a, in a future matter, uh, you know, the amount involved and the results obtained. There's a lot of different factors. So it's my favorite law school answer of all all time, which is, it depends. Um, but it's it's hard for a client to make a good informed thing. The best you can probably do is 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 go shop around a little bit and, and get an idea. That's probably the best answer. Dean, you came to weigh in in terms of your, your students uh, and, and what what training or uh, in particular with legal ethics uh, do, do law students get coming out and going into the real world in terms of what fees should be? Well, it's a great question. You know, the, the, the people I think who have the hardest time with this question, Greg, are the ones who open their own law firms. Uh, you know, and so I always tell the students to get a mentor, talk to other lawyers, find out what's reasonable in your community. You know, if you're a brand new lawyer, it's going to take you a little bit longer. To, to come up maybe to the same result as maybe a more experienced lawyer who already has files they can rely on. So, you know, your, your fee is probably going to be a little bit lower per hour, uh, but it may take you longer than someone who uh, has a higher fee but can do it quicker. So it is something that I, I encourage young lawyers especially to find a mentor, talk to other lawyers about what they do, and, uh, and that's really the, the best advice I can give them. And, and I've, I know I've counseled folks and, and other lawyers will not like it that I would do this, I wouldn't think. But, you know, you can negotiate a fee with a lawyer. Uh, what a lawyer tells you is his hourly rate doesn't necessarily mean that's what the bottom rate will be. Would you agree with that? I, I do. But, uh, you know, it's just like anything else. Uh, you know, when I go buy a TV, I don't buy the least expensive one. I may not buy the, buy the most expensive one. You, you want to try to 
you know, get a value. I, I, one thing I would caution against, and I've seen this with, with friends and acquaintances over the years, some folks are so fixated on, I want to make sure I'm not getting messed over by the lawyer on these fees. They're going to they're gonna trick me on this and that. And they invest more time on that than really what the case may be about. Um, you know, find somebody you trust. If you don't trust, uh, you know, anyone, then that, that's going to be kind of difficult. But, you know, at the end of the day, this is a relationship uh, where the, the client has had a situation present itself, whether it was their creation or someone else's, and it's tough emotionally, physically, or both, and you want to find someone that you connect with, that you can trust, and fees are something you need to talk about uh, for sure, but if you're quibbling on everything else, I mean, as, as a lawyer, you know, we, I advise lawyers from time to time, there are some clients you shouldn't get hired by, uh, so it's it, it kind of works both ways, so if you're, if you're a piece of work too much on the front end, then it may can impact, you know, your ability to, to you know, on who you get as a lawyer once you get forward, go forward. And treat, treat going to a lawyer like you treat going to a doctor. You are going to pay a lot less if you come to us to help you prevent a problem from occurring than you are if you wait until there's a serious problem. Then it's going to cost us a lot more to try to help you. So it's going to cost you more. And so, you know, it really is important that people think about planning ahead, and lawyers can help them do that. If you come to us on the front end, we're going to be a lot less expensive. Uh, that, that's a great note, uh, Professor. And, and one thing folks may not realize is the rules, our rules uh, that govern our profession, impose certain obligations uh, in addition to just being, you know, within the marketplace as a lawyer and charging fees. Uh, your fees, you have certain fiduciary duties to your clients. And, and Adam, if you could uh, maybe sort of just talk generally about what are some of the duties that as a client I should expect my lawyer uh, to abide by. Uh, quick rundown on these, because as you can imagine, I could do an hour on each of these, it seems like. Uh, you know, scope of the representation. What was the lawyer hired to do? The client should expect the lawyer to pursue what it is they were hired to do. Uh, diligence. Uh, the lawyer has an obligation to be diligent about the case, not neglect the case. Uh, communication is a big one and, and is a source of conversation. I suspect we'll spend more time on it after the break. But communication, uh, you know, a lawyer's obligation is to respond to reasonable requests for information. Sometimes the case is very active and it requires a lawyer and the client to visit multiple times in a week. Other times there's extended period of time where the case is virtually dormant for very good reasons and there's not that. So, uh, you know, lawyers should also has an obligation to save, keep client property uh, if that's involved, whether that's money or a physical item and comp- duty of con- confidentiality. The lawyer can't talk about it to other folks and that's to the benefit of the client. The client needs to make sure they protect that confidentiality too. Well, let's go back to the phone lines because we've got Savannah in Mobile, Alabama. Savannah, good morning. Yes, sir. Y'all just hit my question right on the head with what you just said. Um, how much? How can you shop for lawyers? And at the same time, uh, be sure that your confidentiality is protected, uh, particularly if there's no retainer and you, you know you go in and you're not getting a good feeling about the lawyer with whom you're, you know, you, the communication's just not there. So you see another one, and you might see a third one. Um, it, I know this is like anything else, like hiring somebody to come into your house and fix something, right? Only bigger, way bigger. 
because it's, it's the law. And as Shakespeare said, first we kill all the lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> Adam, do you want to take uh, Savannah's question about confidentiality when yes. you're meeting and shopping around? Sure. A lawyer uh, has an obligation as they are screening a case and considering whether they want to uh, uh, take on that matter to maintain that confidentiality. Um you know, I, I recognize that people do go visit with different lawyers. Uh, in a perfect world, you wouldn't have to think about that. You've got a good personal recommendation or a prior experience with a lawyer uh, that allows you to feel good about who you're going to see at the front end. Um, it, it's a balancing act. It's hard to get too specific, but I can tell you, you know, from a practical standpoint, if I was in the situation you're describing where I, I anticipate I'm going to see more than one lawyer, uh, I would generally discuss what the case is about and, and limit some of the specifics so that you're not uh, giving away too much information. That being said, the lawyer that listens to a potential client about a case, uh, if, if there is confidential information that has been transmitted, they can be conflicted out uh, from being able to take a case on later. Uh, but the visit itself is not an automatic, they're conflicted out. Uh, and, and uh, you know, the lawyers on this call for sure know that, that how this can go down. There have been instances where clients will go visit with several lawyers so that they can conflict them out. Um, just sitting down and visiting with a lawyer, hey, I might be getting a divorce, versus a detailed conversation about that divorce are two very different things. So just because you went and spoke to a lawyer does not mean there's a conflict uh, um, uh, later on. Uh, it, it really depends on, on the level of that discussion. And, you know, Shakespeare's quote, by the way, about uh, killing all the lawyers was a, a character that was really saying, hey, if we want to have chaos in our society, we want to have anarchy. Let's first kill all the lawyers. So just want to point that out. Yes, sir. Thank you. Savannah, thank you for the call. And we need to take our next break for the day. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Adam Kilgore about what you should know and expect as a client. We'd love for you to join us. So give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. We've been talking with Adam Kilgore, who's general counsel at the Mississippi Bar, about what you should expect as a client once your case gets rolling. And and Adam and, and Dean Gershon, when we talked about this topic uh, before the show, uh, the topic was really described as how do you be a, quote, good client? Uh, so, uh, Adam, I'd like to just throw that out to you. Is what would it take to be a or what does it take to be a good client today? 
you know, th- this is not in any set of rules anywhere. It's not really in a checklist either. But I think the biggest issue for a client is to own where they are. What is going on? If you were in a car accident and you're in physical pain and you've got financial stress as a result, you're not sleeping well, all these things are going on. There's also emotional component that goes to that. Own where you are and recognize it. Um, you know, lawyers visiting with clients, there are times where they the client feels that there's a coldness from the lawyer because they're maybe not as upset as, as the client is. The lawyer doesn't understand me. Well, recognize that you didn't hire that lawyer to be as upset as you are. You actually hired that lawyer to give you advice. They need some level of emotional detachment so that they can make informed decisions and guide you so you can then make an informed decision on the things that you're supposed to to make the choice on. And it it is very difficult to do that for a lot of folks, and and but you know you see the pain over and over again, and that doesn't mean lawyers shouldn't be unfeeling. I've certainly had cases before that I had it was it was emotional for me. Um, I think all of us have had those, and if we don't, there's something wrong with us. But generally speaking, we got to keep our game face on and do what we need to do. That doesn't mean that we as lawyers aren't are, are unfeeling in any way. Dean, do you, you care to weigh in on the uh, sort of uh, Adam's point there about the emotional balance that, that a client should bring to the table? Yes, Greg. I think that's really important because you, you want the lawyer to look at this objectively and to think about the law. And even, you know, sometimes we have to tell a client uh, who's really upset that, in our opinion, they don't really have a case. And that's that's hard to hear, too. But that's better than, you know, having us move forward and cost them money on something that we there's a cause that's not going to go anywhere. Uh, the other thing clients need to think about, too, is timeliness. So, you know, you want to once you start. The, the process, you know, be quick about it because there are statutes of limitations that can run out. So, you know, uh, we have to um, think about all those things uh, in an objective way. Well, let's go back to the phone lines. We have Evan in South Mississippi. Evan, good morning. Evan, are you with us? Can you hear me? Um, this is Yvonne. <laughs> can you hear me? Uh, Yvonne, I'm, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Apologize. Well, you know, if I'd been a boy. I, I just got E-V-A-N in front of me. My, my, my apologies. Yvonne, good morning. Good morning. How are you today? I'm just fine. What's oh, your question or comment? My question is, uh, I've got to wrap this up because it's a lot in my head, but there's a major malpractice lawsuit that was filed last year against a doctor um, who happens to be on the board, a very, very prominent member in the, the county and in the, in the area in which they live. And the malpractice lawsuit is a life and death lawsuit. It costs um, already well over $8 million in hospital bills in order to maintain some sort of quality of life. Um, this is, I'm speaking about my daughter, actually. Uh, she, was, she managed to be able to have a child, but after 12 miscarriages and a botched DNC in the last miscarriage that basically threw her body into a, a staph infection because the product, she was left behind by this doctor. Everything was covered up by the hospital as well, but truth has been known, documents have been disclosed, and now the lawyer that has been representing her seems to be stalling and stalling and stalling while she gets suffering and her health is declining and she has a two and a half year old child. And it's, it's like 
there's no recourse. It's almost like the lawyer is saying, well, you're worth more dead than you are alive, so let's just wait till you're dead. And maybe it's going to be one of those scenarios of statues of the patient to put it for now. But it's court. I'm very, very afraid of it. And I would like to know possibly if it was not the right course of action. Maybe it should have been kept out of state or something. Uh, maybe you can just kind of give me a little bit of um, hope on this point. I, I, Yvonne, I, I, thank you for the call. I, I, I'm clearly in a very emotional situation for you. And Adam, let me let me put it to you this way: in terms of if you, uh, clients, and for all clients, the cases uh, can be very emotional. And for Yvonne's case, it sounds particularly uh, so. What would you recommend? She's now a type one diabetic because of it as well, okay. and she has a staph infection that's been ongoing since the birth of her child. But she has to go in and have to take surgery to remove pockets of this infection throughout her body. And, and so th- thank you so much, uh, Adam. It, it sounds like she's. Well, her question touches on exactly what we want to talk about this segment, which is, you know, you're emotionally involved, but at the same time, you don't feel like your lawyer is living up to his end of the bargain, her end of the bargain, and representing you. What what should what what steps should Yvonne take? Well, first of all, Yvonne, I am sorry for you and your daughter and, and uh, the family members that are impacted on this. I, I know this is uh, – I can imagine – potentially how difficult this is. So uh, y'all hang in there. From from uh, the client lawyer standpoint, uh, communicating with the lawyer uh, on a case that has been ongoing where, um, you know, the client or a loved one that you're that you're assisting is is uh, feeling the effects of this uh, every day. And, and it seems to be there's no end in sight either on the case or that person's suffering is when you're really going to get worn down. Uh, trying to communicate with the lawyer, have a meaningful update as to what the cases about, um, sometimes the best approach, instead of an email or a phone call, uh, may well be to send a letter. If you've tried those things and you're not getting the update you need to understand what's going on in the case, sending a certified letter, return receipt requested that you know states, I am asking for an update. Can you please tell me where we are now and where it looks like we're going to be going uh, is, is probably the, the best route and save a copy of that stuff. Uh, and so you, you've got a record of, of attempting to communicate with that lawyer to get, to get more information. The other challenge here, no matter how difficult the case is, the other challenge is, is uh, this is completely personal to her and her family. That's likely not the lawyer's only case. Uh, you know, we, we can have 100 files going at once, and we're trying to move each of them along. And some days there's fires with one, and some days there's fires with another one. And that, that balancing act uh, can be especially difficult in some weeks. It feels like it's been Monday every day, um, so it's, it can be very difficult to invest the time that you would like to. But as long as your lawyer staying within that statute of limitations and is being diligent in the rep- representation, they're they're within line. Yvonne, thank you for the call. We're going to try to squeeze in one more call uh, during this segment. We have Dudley down in Calhoun County. Dudley, good morning. Good morning. What's your question or comment this morning? My comment is about advertising on radio and television. Is there some kind of ethics according uh, to the advertising, or is this entirely up to the attorney who is advertising? 
Uh, the Mississippi Rules of Professional Conduct do deal with advertising. Those are rules 7.1 through 7.7, and those can be accessed from the Supreme Court of Mississippi website. Uh, there is also some information on the BARS website, msbar.org. Most of that information is really related to lawyers. Uh, people are surprised we don't get a lot of bar complaints about advertising. Uh, most of the time when we do hear from someone, it is from a lawyer, not from uh, a citizen who's complaining about it. I did get one phone call about a particular lawyer was advertising too much during a particular football game one time, but that's the only phone call I've ever gotten. Uh, the general premise on advertising is that an advertisement cannot be false, misleading, or deceptive. Uh, you will see some language that appears at the bottom of advertisements. Uh, ours in Mississippi it requires that it say free background information available upon request. But the free speech component to this uh, does leave the lawyer that's advertising a good bit of leeway as long as they are not advertising something that is false, misleading, or deceptive. Uh, One other point I want to make about advertising, people have differing opinions on whether they like it or not, Uh, the nature of the the advertisement. um, The rules do not regulate taste. So um, that issue comes up a good bit, and most of the time it is someone has an opinion that an advertisement is, is not of good taste, per se. Well, as long as it's not false, misleading, or deceptive, they're probably okay within the ethics. And what I tell my students about that, I mean, it is a free speech right, uh, commercial free speech. The, the United States Supreme Court said that. It used to be that bar organizations prevented lawyers from advertising at all, even in the yellow pages. Uh, you know, obviously we were at the other end of that. But I tell my students, just because you can do something doesn't mean you have to. And you need to use judgment about, you know, how you approach advertising. Do you find, Adam, uh, that more lawyers are advertising today than, say, they did 15, 20 years ago? It seems like it. I know there are, uh, you know, I have, I have friends in the profession, of course, and, and people will call me and say, I'm finally doing this. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do it. And, and it's it's more than just, you know, radio and television, of course. Uh, a newspaper is still a viable, uh, uh, as is the Internet. Uh, I think people people are doing it more. Um, uh, obviously, there's there's some folks that have been doing it for a while now, and, and um, they very much benefited uh, from it from the get-go when people were a bit wary about advertising and and they got themselves near the front of the line. There's been benefit to them uh, for their career and being able to build their practice going forward. And one historical note is that there are not as many lawyers in the legislature now because it used to be before lawyers could advertise that's how they advertised, was they would run for the legislature. And I've talked to a lot of older lawyers who said that's exactly what they did so they can get their name out there and they don't need to do that anymore. Well, we're going to take our final. That's interesting history, uh, Professor. We're going to take our final break for the day. Uh, we still have a lot to cover, uh, and we hope you'll join us when when we come back. You can give us a call at one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio.
This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to In Legal Terms. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show at mpbonline.org slash terms. We're having a great conversation this morning with Adam Kilgore, who is general counsel of the Mississippi Bar, uh, about what it means to be a, a good client. And Adam, before our last break, we just took, we were touching on managing emotional expectations and emotional balance, but there's a lot more that we could pass on to potential clients out there and how to be a good client. So I'll, I'll turn that over to you. Well, there's a couple of them. We've, we've all got our uh, hot button ones that, that we feel strongly about. I, I'm sure both of you uh, have some that you may add to it. For me, uh, you know, clients I've seen in the past uh, court experience, uh, you know, where I've ob- observed or participated or heard from other people, uh, there are clients that will either show up late to court or if they do um, show up on, uh, they will show up uh, not dressed appropriately. Um, it is not an exaggeration to say I have seen people show up at court in what looks like pajamas. Um, you know, there is a, and the reason I feel strongly about this issue is if if, if we as lawyers uh, are, are going to expect the system of justice to be respected, then the lawyers need to encourage the clients to dress appropriately to go to court. You don't have to wear an expensive suit. You know, dress nicely, tuck in your shirt, shave that day, you know, the basics, like you would be going to church, even if it was a church that is a more casual setting, show respect for the courthouse, because that is our house of justice throughout the state and throughout this country. Um, So dress appropriately. And and I think the judges are paying attention. Does that mean that the judge is going to rule in a different way? Uh, No, I don't think it does. But it's not a good impression to make. Certainly a conversation you should have with your lawyer about what would be appropriate for this setting. You know, if you're, is it just in front of the judge today or you going in front of a jury today? Uh, I've had clients, you know, for depositions. Uh, and, and I've always been of the opinion, even for depositions, you don't have to wear a suit. But dress up. I mean, wear business casual kind of because it's a formal setting. It's like you're testifying in court. Um. Another thing uh, to keep a good relationship with your lawyer, uh, Adam, is is the bills. <laughs> so they start coming in. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, that it's a good idea to pay those. Um, uh, that that can be a source of frustration, uh, uh, as you can imagine, on on both fronts. And it, it's one of those things where if if you're in, you know, lawyers work with clients all the time. Uh, we certainly can't sit here on the radio and say, well, if you tell your lawyer that you're, you're a little behind and you can't get it this month, I'm sure they'll be okay with it. But have the conversation and say what's going. Going on, uh, the lawyer understands. They they have you know if if you if you're into a case for a while, they've gotten to know each other, the client and the lawyer. Um, oftentimes, good friendships actually come out of out of these things. But you know you're getting to know each other. You know the lawyer's pulling for the client. The client appreciates the lawyer. Um, you know that can strain the relationship quickly if things aren't being paid. So at least communicate with them if you're having some difficulty. Depending on the nature of the case, the lawyer may be well aware that you're having the difficulty. On the flip side, if you're not paying your bill, you know calling your lawyer from a, you know a, a, a fancy island somewhere is probably not a good message to send either. So uh, try to pay your bills. Yeah, it's a good idea. 
And, and can a lawyer withdraw from a case if the client just stops paying his bills altogether? Well, a lawyer can withdraw for a variety of reasons. Uh, certainly, uh, that can come into the mix. Um, you know, the, the bigger one that, that we can see is, is the lawyer, uh, the, the client refuses to, uh, you know, continues down a path that the lawyer finds repugnant. And that's not just a strategic thing. You know, the quick example I like to give is, you know, the lawyer is in charge of the strategy. Uh, it's like hiring a football coach. Whether you're going to run or pass on fourth down in the Super Bowl is probably going to be up to the lawyer, not to the client. But the client does get the say on whether that lawyer's making the call or not from the standpoint of whether they're the coach or not. So, I mean, there's there's kind of an inter- interchange there. So you got to let the lawyer make the, the uh, strategic call to pursue the objective. They're the learned professional in this scenario. Uh, but, you know, a lawyer can withdraw or, or attempt to withdraw uh, for a variety of reasons. But if the case is ongoing, they oftentimes have to get court approval. We've actually seen circumstances where a judge will say, this case is too far gone. I don't, you know, it's, I recognize that you aren't getting along for whatever reason. We're still not going to let you out because it's going to harm the concept of justice to do so. It'll delay things too much. There's too many things at stake. So that is one reason, yes. And let's talk uh, about communicating with the lawyer, you know, back and forth. Uh, you know, how often should a client uh, reach out to the lawyer for updates, reports, and on the flip side, you know, when the lawyer calls the client, uh, you know, how you know responsive and prompt should the client be in responding? Well, it's a good idea to respond to that person to, to, to go to go in the backwards uh, order there. The, uh, you know, client obviously should be responsive to the lawyer and recognize that the lawyer has has more than one case going on in, in their career. Uh, on the flip side, the lawyer needs to be responsive to the client. Lawyer's obligation is to respond to reasonable requests for information. Uh, again, that's one of those. It depends things. Uh, But as a client, um, one of the things that you could do is try to gather up questions that you have and don't pick up the phone or send an email for every one of those questions. If it doesn't have an urgent component to it, save it up. Put two or three in an email or two or three of those concepts in a telephone call or just, you know what, next week when I hear from my lawyer, I'm going to do that. Now, when I was in private practice, I like to send my clients a letter once a month if nothing had gone on with the case. Hey, just letting you know, we're still scheduled for a deposition in May. Um, You know, we expect this, this, and this. Nothing's going on with the case right now. Call me if you have any questions kind of thing. And what that ended up doing is preventing the client from making an unnecessary phone call because there's really nothing going on. Um, And saving them costs. Saving them costs. This is is saving everybody in some sense. Well, we have about a little less than a minute and a half, and we've got to go back to the lines to see if we can get in Steve's call. Steve, good morning. Morning. I had a uh, workman's comp. Uh, case a few years ago and and I actually what I did is I went to Google and uh, there was some information there from the uh, American Bar Association and I kind of followed those guidelines and I took in what I thought and what the guidelines said was appropriate and uh, my attorney was most appreciative. He, He pretty much had everything he needed to get that case going and the case was settled within about Six months, which is which is pretty fast in, in legal time. 
Steve, thank you for the call. Uh, Adam, uh, resources available for individuals uh, from the bar in terms of what to have when you prepare for a case? We, we've got a pamphlet, and frankly, I meant to look at it before I came today, and I forgot <laughs> to. But we, I know we I know we have some information in our lobby, and it may well be uh, online, too. I'll check that when I get back. But uh, I'm glad that resource is there for the ABA. Uh, it, he sounds like a good client. Of course, you know, to all the listeners, we don't want you to have to be a client. The whole point is to not be in a situation where you need to be. Uh, but someday it's going to rain. You're going to need an umbrella. And so, uh, you know, here we go. And these are the things to think about. But um, it sounds like uh, our last caller incorporated much of what we talked about on the front end. So there we go. And that's going to wrap us up for today's In Legal Terms. We appreciate Adam Kilgore joining us today. To hear today's show or a previous show, visit mpbonline.org slash In Legal Terms. Or you can download the MPB Media app and listen on your smart device on demand. Our board engineer today was Jay White, Professor Richard Gershon. I'm Greg Mayer. I've just filled in for Liz Gill today, who's going to be back next week. Up next is going to be Relatively Speaking. Join us again next Tuesday at 10 for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.